Hello, welcome to Debrief, a King's Chambers podcast. My name is Nigel Poole. The Debrief podcast aims to provide an analysis of issues in the field of clinical negligence and healthcare law, and we hope that it will be of use and interest to lawyers and non-lawyers alike. This is part two of my conversation with Nadine Montgomery. Nadine, um, in the first part, we talked about your experience of bringing your case through the courts. I thought we could talk about the ramifications of the Supreme Court judgment, but just taking a step back, in England and Wales, we have the Bolam test. In the Scottish courts, the equivalent about the standard of care is, is a case called Hunter and Hanley. Is that right? That's correct. You, I think you've, I've heard you talk about it as a sort of skill and care test, is it? What, yes, that's my understanding. Yeah. So what, what did you learn about that case when you've done your legal study? What's the standard? So, you know, such a failure as no ordinary doctor of skill would be guilty of if acting with ordinary care. So, like, a, essentially a skill and care test. Yeah. So I've got a quote here from Hunter and Hanley. So those who aren't familiar with the Scottish law will be able to sort of compare it. But I'll just read it out anyway. In regard to allegations of deviation from ordinary professional practice, such a deviation is not necessarily evidence of negligence. Indeed, it would be disastrous if this were so, for all inducement to progress in medical science would then be destroyed. Even a substantial deviation from normal practice may be warranted by the particular circumstances. To establish liability where a doctor, by a doctor where deviation from normal practice is alleged, three facts require to be established. First of all, it must be proved that there is a usual and normal practice. Secondly, it must be proved that the defender has not adopted that practice. And thirdly, and this is of crucial importance, it must be established that the course the doctor adopted is one which no professional man of ordinary skill would have taken if he had been acting with ordinary care. So applying that, if you applied that test to your case and the question of consent then I suppose what was decided by the first judge and, and, and on appeal was that your obstetrician had acted in accordance with that usual practice. Yes. Or at least had not departed from it in a way that no professional, says man, person of ordinary skill yes. um, w- would, have, would have done. Yeah. But <clears throat> Essentially you, you like felt that shouldn't it? be the test for... No. Well, do you think that role does have a... Or that test does have a role for the medical profession generally, if not in relation to consent, but perhaps in relation to the delivery of treatment. So, in terms of so, yes, not in terms of consent or information disclosure or advice. I think that there's no place for um, Hunter and Hanley Bolam anymore. I think that there is a place for Bolam, Hunter and Hanley, maybe in you know. Treatment cases, investigation, um, assessment, that kind of area. Yeah. So in the inner house, I'll read part of the judgment, paragraph 30. In these circumstances, we have come to the view that the Lord Ordinary, that's the judge at the first instance, isn't it, correctly concluded that in the absence of specific inquiries to risk, there was no failure by Dr. McLennan 
in the advice which she gave, and that as a matter of professional responsibility, she was not required to spell out the very small risk of a grave outcome such as that which unfortunately materialised in the present case. The approach of Dr McLennan in this matter was amply endorsed by expert evidence, which the Lord Ordinary was entitled to and did accept, of prevailing responsible professional practice. So very much you, you lost at that stage because Dr McLennan had acted in accordance with prevailing responsible professional practice. So it was up to the profession, in effect, to decide yeah. what you should be told. So, yeah, it's essentially a peer test, isn't it? And, and it takes away from the patient. And my argument was this should be a patient-focused test now. Yeah. And that is, in effect, the outcome that you achieved from yeah. the Supreme Court decision. So... Um, I'll just quote from the Supreme Court, if I may, but the key quotes, paragraph 81. The law has developed so that instead of treating patients as placing themselves in the hands of their doctors and then being prone to sue their doctors in the event of a disappointing outcome, treats them so far as possible as adults who are capable of understanding that medical treatment is uncertain of success and may involve risks, accepting responsibility for taking of risks affecting their own lives and living with the consequences of their choices. So if the patient takes responsibility for the choices, they take responsibility, I suppose, for the risks. Absolutely. Because it's up to them what risk they're willing to take. Each patient comes with their own individual set of circumstances that might want to take a risk or might not want to. And I don't think we can ever be in a place where doctors are making that decision for them because... As, as you've just read out, the patient has to live with the consequences, not the doctor. Yeah. And I suppose what is a relevant or material risk may be different for, well, in, in, in the, the kind of case you were involved with for different mothers, but in a, in a wider sense, for different patients, they'll all have different ideas of what is a risk that they would wish to take into Absolutely. account. Absolutely. Yeah. I think maybe, you know, if a surgeon might not want to take risks on his hands, they're important to him, they're providing his salary and supporting his family, whereas someone else might think, OK, I don't, I don't mind taking a risk and might be willing to do that, but that should be for the patient to make that decision. Right. And then a paragraph 87 of the Supreme Court, and this is the paragraph that just gets repeated in many other cases. Uh, I quote, The doctor is therefore under a duty to take reasonable care to ensure that the patient is aware of any material risks involved in any recommended treatment and of any reasonable alternative or variant treatments. The test of materiality is whether, in the circumstances of the particular case, a reasonable person in the patient's position would be likely to attach significance uh, to the risk, or the doctor is, or should reasonably be aware that the particular patient would be likely to attach significance to it. Interestingly, I think in the Scottish courts, one point that the judges referred to was that you had not specifically asked about the risk of shoulder dystocia. Yeah. Is that right? I think what the arguments were was that I hadn't specifically used the word risks. So although it was acknowledged that I asked about, I had concerns about delivering a large baby, that I hadn't used the word risk. And what I would say to that is that you know, patients come from all walks of life. We don't always use the language that a doctor would use. So we should be looking at our patients and thinking, 
what are they saying to me? So when I was saying, you know, I'm concerned, what does this mean? My baby's large. That's a cue for a discussion about, you know, um, possible um, consequences and, you know, what could go wrong. That those are, we, just because we don't use the word risk doesn't mean, you know, we're, that's not what we're talking about. Yeah. Our language is very different. And if you'd gone on to have that sort of conversation, just just out of interest, would you have expected to have been told about risk in percentage terms or significant, moderate, small risk? Probably in percentage terms, but I understand that that's quite a great area. But in, in my case, just talking about my case, a 9 to 10% risk, that in, would have triggered alarm bells in my head because that for me is quite a high risk. And I think we need to quantify what is small, what is moderate, what is a large risk. Yeah. Um, so that can be quite ambiguous. To you, what was the most important point in the judgment? I've just read out that yeah. sort of test that is now being applied in, in other cases. What is it in that test that you think is the most important point? I think that the patient is aware of any material risks and that there are also you know, what, what the other reasonable alternatives are. So in my case, the reasonable alternative would have been the caesarean section, and that's a fairly acceptable option. So we should be telling patients, you know, that this is, you know, we can go down procedure X, and this is the consequences of X or the risks, but there's also procedure Y, and again, so wh- which is, you know, more... So ex- it's exactly what I've been saying, and it's exactly what I wanted um, in terms of explaining to patients what the risks are and in keeping with the GMC guidelines. And just to play devil's advocate, there are some, and Dr McLennan, as we said in part one, or as you explained in part one, had said in court, look, if if this is offered, if caesarean is offered to mothers, yeah. then they'll all do it. They'll all choose to have it. I'm sure she didn't mean all, but... Many more mothers would choose to have it. And generally, that is, quotes a bad thing, that it's not in the mm-hmm. interests of mothers generally. Yeah. Do you, is, that, is that, do you think, a danger that your case might lead to more caesareans and that that might be regarded as generally an, an unfortunate consequence? Is that something you've thought about or you, you, you have a view on? I don't think we should be focused on the amount of caesarean sections that we're doing and I don't think doctors should be. I think there is a big kind of deal made about caesarean section rates but we can't just look at that in isolation. We need to look at, you know, high-risk patients and it could be for maternal well-being that that is the best option for them. So, no, I don't feel that that was an issue. Um, And you talked about the importance to you from the judgment of advice, patients receiving advice about alternatives. Mm-hmm. I suppose if that isn't included, then it really is a question of a doctor saying to a patient, this is what I do, or this is the way I manage these cases, rather than here's a, a number of realistic and reasonable options, and here are the risks and benefits of them. What's your view, or what's your choice so it is important to know about other options isn't it I think so and I think that they should be looking at their options and making their decisions together and that's when the patients 
point of view comes across to the doctor and he says, well, this is important to me, so maybe option A isn't going to be suitable. Mm. And then they would maybe steer towards option B. Yeah. So what about those who say, well, suppose there are 20 options. (laughs) Uh, Do I have to, as a doctor, go through all of the risks and benefits okay so maybe we're only looking at reasonable alternatives we have to like read the wording in the case Mm -hmm. um so i don't think we have to go through 20 different alternatives so maybe we could talk around like the 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 main ones that would be used and the risks associated with each one of them and find out what's important to the patient and maybe because you just talked in this way talking around so it's a dialogue as the supreme court said it's a dialogue yes it may be that that dialogue would lead to a discussion of you know a less common alternative or variant treatment but it depends on that dialogue between patient and and doctor yeah i think a lot of it depends on the doctor getting to know their patient Mm. and what about you know the one in a one in a million risk and a patient might say you know that's relevant to me or say that after the event when they weren't warned about it in your case the the risk certainly of shoulder dystocia was, was a lot higher than that yeah, it was 90 10 yeah. percent and maybe one in a million i think that you know if that's important to the patient maybe that i i, I can't imagine many patients wanting to know one in a million risk yeah. but um you know the, the the material risk that's what we're talking about here yeah can I re- read you this? This was a, a letter to the British Medical Journal about, about your case okay. <laughs> as a response. This is all fine, but it is assumed consultations are as long as it takes and there's no pressure of work. In other words, cuckoo land. So <clears throat> one response amongst some doctors anyway to your case or the Supreme Court's decision was that look, there just isn't long enough for us to go through this sort of conversation with patients. Were you aware of that reaction? Yeah, I think there was a very mixed reaction. There was a lot of doctors that felt that this decision was just purely academic because this is something they'd been doing for years and it was accordance with the GMC guidelines. However, there also was doctors that felt, well, wait a minute here, how how are we going to fit this in now to our uh, busy schedules, which is completely understandable. I think that we should be looking at giving doctors resources to be able to do this um, and then keeping them um, inside the law as well um, so they're not wide open for litigation. And that comes down to the NHS Trust, doesn't it, and the, the general manager of hospitals to provide them with the resources. What are the resources? We need to be having discussions about these and how we would implement it. Yeah, so the alternative is that patients just don't have the autonomy to make decisions for themselves on full information. But that's no longer an option. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. Um, Is this something where you followed the reaction to your case? Is that something you've Yeah, I do a little bit. Um, I I do some speaker meetings and I get to talk to a lot of doctors, nurses, midwives, um, and the majority of the response is fantastic. And more in terms of from the patient's point of view, obviously, that this does protect our right for self-determination. But at the same time, doctors are asking, well, how do we do this? And these are all that I think we need to be having discussions now about, you know, how we're going to fit that in, the time constraints. You know, their clinics are already busy. Perhaps the NHS as a whole needs to be looking at that because 
you know, in my opinion, medicine is advancing so rapidly. I mean, I, I think about my diabetes as an example. And when I was first diagnosed as a small child, you know, I'm 45 now, that we, we pricked our finger and, and you squeezed the blood and then you put it on a strip and then you waited for a minute and then you wiped off the strip and then you waited for another minute and then you matched like a colour chart and your blood sugar would be between three and seven. That's what your result. Now we have scanners in our arms and you just scan your arm and it tells you 3.7, whatever the result is. So medicine is moving so rapidly in so many different areas, but this area seems kind of stagnated. We're not moving, we're not progressing. And now if it is enshrined in law, we need to be looking at it to protect everyone, patients and doctors. One interesting facet of the reaction from some within the medical profession, obviously not all, was that actually there was already guidance from the General Medical Council in the form of good medical practice, which was to advise patients of, quotes, material risks. So the Supreme Court judgment, is it right, was in line with good medical practice. I think you mentioned you were aware of what the GMC guidance was. Yeah, we had the guideline, yeah. I think it's exactly what the GMC guidelines said, and it shouldn't really be a big deal for doctors because this was already the guidance, the ethical guidance. Um, Just now, the only difference is it's now been passed into law. So good doctors were already doing this, so it shouldn't have been a big deal. Um, I don't want to put you on the spot too much, but one way in which consent is taken or is given is through signing a form. Sure. Um, is the answer just to list everything on the form and get someone to sign it? Oh gosh, <laughs> I don't. I don't think you can do that because it doesn't personalise it to the patient. Um, I don't like the idea of consent documentations insofar as it doesn't really give you any evidence of anything. It just says that the patient basically has consented to or agreed to whatever the treatment is going to be. There is no discussions noted on that bit of paper of options, uh, risks of each potential option. Um, so I think the signing of a consent form doesn't amount to valid consent for treatment. And I don't think it's sufficient evidence, in my opinion. Um, and I don't think we can just list a lot of different, you know, things that could go wrong and ask the patient to. We really have to be looking at each patient specific to them and what's important to them and consenting that way. You say you've talked to groups of medics at um, presentations and and so on. Um, Are you aware of certain bodies of medical professionals changing their guidance and or issuing new guidance in the light of your... Yeah, I think a lot of them have. Um, I think one of the most forward um, groups of doctors are the Royal College of Anaesthetists. They're very forward-thinking and indeed they always practice consent very well and I think it was to do with their training but yeah not all royal colleges have changed their practice I think since the case in 2015 I'm not aware that the Royal College of Obstetrics and uh, Obstetricians and Gynaecologists has changed their practice Um, so maybe hopefully at some point I can meet up with them and have a discussion. (laughs) You'd like to do that? Yeah I would like to do that. (laughs) And when you've spoken to groups of medics and they've heard from you what's generally been the response to you? I think that it puts it into perspective what a patient has been through. I mean, I think when you read the case, um, you kind of read the judgment and you think, oh, this is what happened. But actually when you hear me speak and you hear me tell the story of 
well, my baby's head was... A, a very graphic story of, well, my baby's head was stuck for 12 minutes and during that time she attempted to break his clavicles to f- pull his shoulders out and then she attempted to push his head back in, you know, probably causing more damage to his fetal head and then she attempted to break my pelvis twice with two different scalpels. When you put it into that perspective of the sheer horror of what can go wrong when you don't consent a patient properly or you don't discuss the risks and options, then it really brings it into the forefront of their minds and they remember that. And I think that's important because that's what we're here for. You know, first do no harm. We're here for their patients. Um, Looking back to your own experience and in particular of the litigation, what, what would you say to someone who was in your position 20 years ago You've said it was a a long journey through the courts. I think that you can't give up and I think you have to stand up for what you believe in. Even if you're standing alone, I completely stood alone. Nobody supported me except, you know, my legal team, no one, the the doctors, the nurses, the midwives. I even remember after the delivery, the midwife who was looking after me put her arm around me and she said, oh, sorry, bad luck. And this, this wasn't bad luck because I wasn't a patient that came in, you know, they didn't know anything about me and had a tragic shoulder dystocia that couldn't have been predicted or prevented. I was a patient at their clinic. I attended this fancy, all singing, all dancing, diabetic obstetric clinic that, you know, took such great care and to such expense looking after me. And the very thing that I should have been protected from happening happened. So I think when you believe is right, what you want to say, just keep going. We know we're, we're the patients and we know, especially for our children. Nadine, thank you very much for joining me for this conversation. Um, That's all for this um, episode of Debrief. Links to the cases we've discussed are on the fact sheet that accompanies this episode. It's available by email from podcasts at kingschambers.com. And you can listen to all our podcasts on your favoured platform or by going to the resources and training section of the King's Chambers website, kingschambers.com. My sincere thanks to Nadine Montgomery for taking time to discuss her hugely important case with me. Thank you and goodbye.